Chapter Three of the History of Mr. Polly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter the Third. Cribs. One. Port Burdock was never the same place for Mr. Polly after Parsons left it. There were no chest notes in his occasional letter, and little of the joy de vivre got through by them. Parsons had gone, he said, to London, and found a place as a warehouseman in a cheap outfitting store near St. Paul's Churchyard, where references were not required. It became apparent as time passed that new interests were absorbing him. He wrote of socialism and the rights of man, things that had no appeal for Mr. Polly. He felt strangers had got hold of his Parsons, were at work upon him, making him into someone else, something less picturesque. Port Burdock became a dreariness full of faded memories of Parsons, and work a bore. Platt revealed himself alone as a tiresome companion, obsessed by romantic ideas about intrigues and vices and society women. Mr. Polly's depression manifested itself in a general slackness, a certain impatience in the manner of Mr. Garvace presently got upon his nerves. Relations were becoming strained. He asked for a rise of salary to test his position, and gave notice to leave when it was refused. It took him two months to place himself in another situation, and during that time he had quite a disagreeable amount of loneliness, disappointment, anxiety, and humiliation. He went at first to stay with a married cousin who had a house at Easewood. His widowed father had recently given up the music and bicycle shop, with the post of organist at the parish church that had sustained his income, and was living upon a small annuity as a guest with his cousin, and growing a little tiresome on account of some mysterious internal discomfort that the local practitioner diagnosed as imagination. He had aged with mysterious rapidity, and become excessively irritable. But the cousin's wife was a born manager, and contrived to get along with him. Our Mr. Polly's status was that of a guest, pure and simple. But after a fortnight of congested hospitality, in which he wrote nearly a hundred letters, beginning, Sir, referring to your advertisement in the Christian world for an improver in gents' outfitting, I beg to submit myself for the situation, have had six years' experience, and upset a bottle of ink over the toilet cover and the bedroom carpet. His cousin took him for a walk and pointed out the superior advantages of apartments in London, from which to swoop upon the briefly yawning vacancy. "'Helpful,' said Mr. Polly. "'Very helpful, old man, indeed. I might have gone on there for weeks.' And packed. He got a room in an institution 
that was partly a benevolent hostel for men in his circumstances, and partly a high-minded but forbidding coffee-house, and a centre for pleasant Sunday afternoons. Mr. Polly spent a critical but pleasant Sunday afternoon in a back seat, inventing such phrases as, "'Soulful owner of the exorbitant largenial development,' and Adam's apple being in question, "'Earnest joy, exultant, urgent lubriosity,' A manly young curate, marking and misunderstanding his preoccupied face and moving lips, came and sat by him, and entered into conversation with the idea of making him feel more at home. The conversation was awkward and disconnected for a minute or so, and then suddenly a memory of the Port Burdock Bazaar occurred to Mr. Polly, and with a baffling whisper of, "'Little dog!' and a reassuring nod, he rose up and escaped, to wander out, relieved and observant, into the varied London streets. He found the collection of men he found waiting about in wholesale establishment in Wood Street and St. Paul's Churchyard, where they interview the buyers who have come up from the country, interesting and stimulating but far too strongly charged with the suggestion of his own fate to be really joyful. There were men in all degrees, between confidence and distress, and in every stage between extravagant smartness and the last stages of decay. There were sunny young men, full of an abounding and elbowing energy, before whom the soul of Polly sank in hate and dismay. "'Smart juniors,' said Polly to himself, "'full of smart juniosity, the shavacious cult. "'There were hungry-looking individuals of thirty-five or so "'that he decided must be proletarians. "'He had often wanted to find someone who fitted that attractive word. "'Middle-aged men, too old at forty, "'discoursed in the waiting-rooms, on the outlook in the trade. It had never been so bad, they said, while Mr. Polly wondered if deduced was a permissible epithet. There were men with an overwhelming sense of their importance, manifestly annoyed and angry to find themselves still disengaged, and inclined to suspect a plot, and men so faint-hearted one was terrified to imagine their behaviour when it came to an interview. There was a fresh-faced young man with an unintelligent face, who seemed to think himself equipped against the world beyond all misadventure by a collar of exceptional height, and another who introduced a note of gaiety by wearing a flannel shirt and a check suit of remarkable virulence. Every day Mr. Polly looked round to mark how many of the familiar faces had gone, and the deepening anxiety, reflecting his own, on the faces that remained. And every day some new type joined the drifting shoal. He realised how small a chance his poor letter from Easewood ran against this hungry cluster of competitors at the fountain-head. 
at the back of Mr. Polly's mind, while he made his observations, was a disagreeable flavour of a dentist's parlour. At any moment his name might be shouted, and he might have to haul himself into the presence of some fresh specimen of employer, and to repeat once more his passionate protestation of interest in the business, his possession of a capacity for zeal, zeal on behalf of anyone who would pay him a yearly salary of twenty-six pounds a year, the prospective employer would unfold his ideals of the employee. I want a smart, willing young man, thoroughly willing, who won't object to take trouble. I don't want a slacker, the sort of fellow who has to be pushed up to his work and held there. I've got no use for him. At the back of Mr. Polly's mind, and quite beyond his control, the insubordinate phrase-maker would be proffering such combinations as chubby chops or chubby charmer, as suitable for the gentleman, very much as a hat-salesman proffers hats. "'I don't think you'll find much slackness about me, sir,' said Mr. Polly, brightly, trying to disregard his deeper self. "'I want a young man who means getting on.' "'Exactly, sir. Excelsior.' "'I beg your pardon?' Uh, "'I said uh, Excelsior, sir. It's a sort of motto of mine, from Longfellow. Would you want me to serve through?' The chubby gentleman explained and reverted to his ideals with a faint air of suspicion. "'Do you mean getting on?' he asked. "'I hope so, sir,' said Mr. Polly. "'Get on or get out, eh?' Mr. Polly made a rapturous noise, nodded appreciation, and said, indistinctly, uh, "'Quite my style.' "'Some of my people have been with me twenty years,' said the employer. "'My Manchester buyer came to me as a boy of twelve. "'You're a Christian?' "'A uh, Church of England,' said Mr. Polly. "'Hm,' said the employer a little checked. For good all-around business work I should have preferred a Baptist. Still, he studied Mr. Polly's tie, which was severely neat and businesslike, as became an aspiring outfitter. Mr. Polly's conception of his own prose and expression was rendered by that uncontrollable phrase-monger at the back as obsequies deference. "'I am inclined,' said the prospective employer, in a conclusive manner, "'to look up your reference.' Mr. Polly stood up abruptly. "'Thank you,' said the employer, and dismissed him. "'Chump-chops. How about chump-chops?' said the phrase-monger, with an air of inspiration. "'I hope then to hear from you, sir.' said Mr. Polly, in his best salesman manner. "'If everything is satisfactory,' said the prospective employer. 2. A man whose brain devotes its hinterland to making odd phrases and nicknames out of ill-conceived words, whose conception of life is a lump of auriferous rock, to which all the value is given by rare veins of unbusinesslike joy, 
who reads Boccaccio and Rabelais and Shakespeare with gusto, and uses Stertonius Shover and Smart Junior as terms of bitterest opprobrium, is not likely to make a great success under modern business conditions. Mr. Polly dreamt always of picturesque and mellow things, and had an instinctive hatred of the strenuous life. He would have resisted the spell of ex-President Roosevelt, or General Baden-Powell, or Mr. Peter Keary, or the late Dr. Samuel Smiles, quite easily. And he loved Falstaff, and Hudibras, and coarse laughter and the old England of Washington Irving, and the memory of Charles II's courtly days. His progress was necessarily slow. He did not get rises. He lost situations. There was something in his eye employers did not like. He would have lost his places oftener if he had not been at times an exceptionally brilliant salesman rather carefully neat, and a slow but very fair window-dresser. He went from situation to situation. He invented a great wealth of nicknames. He conceived enmities and made friends, but none so richly satisfying as Parsons. He was frequently, but mildly and discursively, in love and sometimes he thought of that girl who had given him a yellow-green apple. He had an idea, amounting to a flattering certainty, whose youthful freshness it was had stirred her to self-forgetfulness, and sometimes he thought of Foxbourne sleeping prosperously in the sun, and he began to have moods of discomfort and lassitude and ill-temper due to the beginnings of indigestion. Various forces and suggestions came into his life, and swayed him for longer and shorter periods. He went to Canterbury, and came under the influence of Gothic architecture. There was a blood affinity between Mr. Polly and the Gothic. In the Middle Ages he would no doubt have sat upon a scaffolding, and carved out penetrating and none too flattering portraits of church dignities upon the capitals and when he strolled with his hands behind his back along the cloisters behind the cathedral and looked at the rich grass plot in the centre he had the strangest sense of being at home far more than he had ever been at home before portly capons he used to murmur to himself under the impression that he was naming a characteristic type of medieval churchman he liked to sit in the nave during the service, and look through the great gates at the candles and choristers, and listen to the organ-sustained voices. But the transepts he never penetrated, because of the charge for admission. The music and the long vista of the fretted roof filled him with a vague and mystical happiness that he had no words, even mispronounceable words, to express but some of the smug monuments in the aisles got a wreath of epithets. Metrorious urnfuls, funereal claims, dejected angelosity, for example. 
He wandered about the precincts and speculated about the people who lived in the ripe and cosy houses of grey stone that cluster there so comfortably. Through green doors in high stone walls he caught glimpses of level lawns and blazing flower-beds. Mullioned windows revealed shaded reading-lamps and disciplined shelves of brown bound books. Now and then a dignitary in gaiters would pass him, portly capon, or a drift of white-robed choir-boys cross a distant arcade and vanish into a doorway, or the pink and cream of some girlish dress flit like a butterfly across the cool, still spaces of the place. Particularly he responded to the ruined arches of the Benedictine's infirmary and the view of Bell Harry Tower from the school buildings. He was stirred to read the Canterbury Tales, but could not get on with Chaucer's old-fashioned English. It fatigued his attention, and he would have given all the story-telling very readily for a few adventures on the road. He wanted these nice people to live more and yarn less. He liked the wife of Bath very much. He would have liked to have known that woman. At Canterbury, too, he first to his knowledge saw Americans. His shop did a good class trade in Westgate Street, and he would see them go on the way to stare at Chaucer's checkers, and then turn down Mercy Lane to Prior Goldstone's gate. It impressed him that they were always in a kind of quiet hurry, and very determined and methodical people much more so than any English he knew. Cultured rapacity, he tried. Verocious return to the heritage. He would expound them, incidentally, to his attendant apprentices. He had overheard a little lady putting her view to a friend near the Christchurch gate. The accent and intonation had hung in his memory, and he would reproduce them more or less accurately. Now, does this Marlowe monument really and truly matter? He had heard the little lady inquire. We've no time for side-shows and second-rate stunts, maybe. We just want the big simple things of the place, just the broad elemental Canterbury proposition. What is it saying to us? I want to get right hold of that, and then have tea in the very room that Chaucer did, and hustle to get that 814 train back to London." He would go over these precious phrases, finding them full of an indescribable flavour. "'Just the broad elemental Canterbury proposition,' he would repeat. He would try to imagine Parsons confronted with Americans. For his own part, he knew himself to be altogether inadequate. Canterbury was the most congenial situation Mr. Polly ever found during those wander years, albeit a very desert so far as companionship went. 3. It was after Canterbury that the universe became really disagreeable to Mr. Polly. It was brought home to him, not so much vividly as with a harsh and ungainly insistence, that he was a failure in his trade. 
It was not the trade he ought to have chosen, though what trade he ought to have chosen was by no means clear. He made great but irregular efforts, and produced a forced smartness that, like a cheap dye, refused to stand sunshine. He acquired a sort of parsimony also, in which acquisition he was helped by one or two phrases of absolute impecuniosity. But he was hopeless in competition against the naturally gifted, the born hustlers, the young men who meant to get on. He left the Canterbury place very regretfully. He and another commercial gentleman took a boat one Sunday afternoon at Starry on the Sour, when the wind was in the west, and sailed it very happily eastward for an hour. They had never sailed a boat before, and it seemed simple and wonderful. When they turned they found the river too narrow for tacking, and the tide running out like a sluice. They battled back to Sturry in the course of six hours, at a shilling for the first hour and sixpence for each hour thereafter, rowing a mile in an hour and a half or so, until the turn of the tide came to help them. And then they had a night walk to Canterbury, and found themselves remorselessly locked out. The Canterbury employer was an amiable, religious-spirited man, and he would probably not have dismissed Mr. Polly if that unfortunate tendency to phrase things had not shocked him. "'A tide's a tide, sir,' said Mr. Polly, feeling that things were not so bad. "'I've no lunatic power to alter that.' It proved impossible to explain to the Canterbury employer that this was not a highly disrespectful and blasphemous remark. "'And besides, what good are you to me this morning, do you think?' said the Canterbury employer, with your arms pulled out of your sockets. So Mr. Polly resumed his observations in the Wood Street warehouses once more, and had some dismal times. The shoal of fish waiting for the crumbs of employment seemed larger than ever. He took counsel with himself. Should he chuck the outfitting? It wasn't any good for him now, and presently when he was older and his youthful smartness had passed into the dullness of middle age, it would be worse. What else could he do? He could think of nothing. He went one night to a music hall and developed a vague idea of a comic performance. The comic men seemed violent rowdies, and not at all funny. But when he thought of the great pit of the audience yawning before him, he realised that his was an altogether too delicate talent for such a use. He was impressed by the charm of selling vegetables by auction in one of those open shops near London Bridge, but admitted upon reflection his general want of technical knowledge. He made some inquiries about emigration, but none of the colonies were in want of shop assistance without capital. He kept up his attendance in Wood Street. He subdued his ideal of salary by the sum of five pounds a year, and was taken at that into a driving establishment in Clapham, 
which dealt chiefly in ready-made suits, fed its assistants in an underground dining-room, and kept them till twelve on Saturdays. He found it hard to be cheerful there. His fits of indigestion became worse, and he began to lie awake at night and think. Sunshine and laughter seemed things lost forever. Picnics and shouting in the moonlight. The chief shopwalker took a dislike to him and nagged him. "'Now there, Polly! Look alive, Polly!' became the burthen of his days. "'As smart a chap as you could have,' said the chief shopwalker. "'But no zest! No zest! No vim! What's the matter with you?' During his night vigils Mr. Polly had a feeling— a young rabbit must have very much the feeling, when, after a youth of gambling in sunny woods and furtive jolly raids upon the growing wheat, and exciting triumphant bolts before ineffectual casual dogs, it finds itself at last, for a long night of floundering effort and perplexity, in a net for the rest of its life. He could not grasp what was wrong with him. He made enormous efforts to diagnose his case. Was he really just a lazy slacker who ought to buck up? He couldn't find it in him to believe it. He blamed his father a good deal. It's what fathers are for. In putting him to a trade he wasn't happy to follow. But he found it impossible to say what he ought to have followed. He felt there had been something stupid about his school. But just where that came in, he couldn't say. He made some perfectly sincere efforts to buck up and shove ruthlessly. But that was infernal, impossible. He had to admit himself miserable, with all the misery of a social misfit, and with no clear prospect of more than the most incidental happiness ahead of him and for all his attempts at self-reproach or self-discipline, he felt at bottom that he wasn't at fault. As a matter of fact, all the elements of his troubles had been adequately diagnosed by a certain high-browed, spectacled gentleman living at Highbury, wearing a gold pince-nez, and writing for the most part in the beautiful library of the Reform Club. This gentleman did not know Mr. Polly personally, but he had dealt with him generally as one of those ill-adjusted units that abound in a society that has failed to develop a collective intelligence and a collective will for order commensurate with its complexities. But phrases of that sort had no appeal for Mr. Polly. End of chapter 3